Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm Lydia Wheeler, filling in for Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. So, Greg, we've got a really interesting show today. We're going to talk about a free speech case coming up next month that looks at threatening statements and what the government has to show in order to prove that speech isn't protected by the First Amendment. That's right. We're going to talk about a case called Counterman versus Colorado, scheduled for argument on April 19th. And the justices are being asked if the government has to show that a speaker knew or intended the statement to be threatening in order to secure a conviction, or if instead it's enough to show that an objective, reasonable person would view the statement as a threat of violence. Let's get to our guest, shall we? So joining us today, we have Elena Cordonian. Uh, She is a law student from Southwestern Law School in Los Angeles. That's right. You heard me correctly. A law student. Uh, She filed a brief in the Counterman case, and we're going to be chatting with her about that now. Elena, thanks for joining us. So I wanted to start off by asking you, um, it's pretty unusual to see a law student file um, uh, amicus you know, brief. And I was wondering if you could tell us how you got involved and how this came about. Yes, and I was anticipating this was going to be the first question. So uh, I am a, a law student indeed, an upper division law student at Southwestern Law School. The brief was filed in association with the amicus project at Southwestern Law School in in order to participate in the project, you would have to be selected. Um, the Amicus Project is a pro bono organization on campus, and it offers select students the opportunity to work on a brief and file it if the brief ends up being good. So I was um, lucky enough to be um, selected for the project when the case came on the docket, and um, I've heard about it. I approached Professor Epstein, who's the director of the project, with the idea that this would be a brief that interests me so much in a case, the outcome of the case as well. So um, he was very excited about it. He supported it. And um, here I am. But indeed, it is very unique to see a law student file a brief. Well, well let's jump jump into the Counterman case. Can you give us a little background here? Tell us a little bit about this case and, and what the issue is the, the Supreme Court is going to be deciding. The issue is whether what mental state, if any, is required, right, to prove um, a true threat. So this case is like the perfect vehicle to finally resolve this issue that's been, you know, circulating on the Supreme Court's docket for a while, right? We have the LNS case in the past where the Supreme Court um, did not resolve the issue. And hence, we have, we get a, we have a second chance at it right now. And um, this particular case is just, I can speak from my personal perspective, just looking at the facts of the case. So um, Billy Counterman, um, Billy Raymond Counterman has been reaching out where I can put it that way to um, what I consider to be his idol online or, or, you know, that happens um, very so often in these days. And in some scenarios, he used language such as die or s- stuff like that. You know, he's been reaching out to, to her for two years, I believe, from what I remember. Um, and with, you know, it wasn't like a constant uh, pattern of threats or harassment or anything like that. I'm sure some language was used um, that could be, you know, considered outrageous by some. Um, but when you're looking at the entire conversation between the two, I mean, the monologue, I should put it that way, um, then 
I did not see the requisite context to convict a person for their speech. That was the only thing that kind of drove me or motivated us to file this brief because um, I feel like if you're adding certain facts, additional facts, and let's say any action on the part of Billy to actually execute, you know, whatever he was saying, um, then that would have been a different, you know, a different scenario. Where here, we just have people, a person uttering, you know, certain words towards another online, and we just don't know exactly what happened on the other, you know, side or on the other end of the meta cable, so to say. Your brief is a, is filed in support of Mr. Counterman, but your test isn't exactly the same as his. Can you describe the standard you're proposing and how that differs from what Mr. Counterman's lawyers are, are arguing for? We believe that this particular test would serve a petitioner, obviously, in their case, but it would also, um, you know, protect individuals who are being stalked when context is present. The decision in this case is going to affect you know, numerous, um, numerous similarly situated defendants. So a test, a sub- pure subjective test would not protect plaintiffs when they're being harassed and stalked and context exists for those particular, um, you know, acts. So that's how we're reconciling both tests and we're ensuring that, or at least we're arguing that this would protect, um, you know, victims of harassment um, in the long run. Uh, Elena, you mentioned in your brief uh, that there's a harm in both the objective standard uh, that Colorado seems to be fighting for and also the subjective intent standard that Mr. Counterman is asking for. And I was hoping that you could share a little bit about what each of those harms is. You know, if they don't adopt your standard of kind of a dual standard, what is the harm of going one way or the other? So um, I think this, you know, the argument in this scenario just for e- for either standard comes by analogy, right? So if we're looking at the subjective standard in isolation, right? So if a person lacks the subjective intent, uh, first, it's very hard to prove. Second, if the person lacks it, um, then when the speech is so outrageous and, and you know, context exists for, for, for that speech to cause harm and and um to threaten and harass another then the defendant would go free so it qual- it would qualify as a free for all type of uh, card allowing defenses to escape prosecution we we don't consider the effects at all on the victim um and in an objective standard then we are just disconsidered we're we're avoiding and ignoring altogether the intent of the speaker, right? So if the person like Billy in our case did not intend um, to do anything or did not intend for his speech to harass or threaten to begin with, then really, um, why are we punishing defendants for? Are we just are we just going after their speech? Because in that scenario, a large array of speech would fall in that category, and a large number of defendants would be prosecuted merely for their speech. Elena, you mentioned earlier the Alonis decision back in 2015 when the Supreme Court was considering this issue. Could you just explain why the court didn't resolve this issue back in that case and where we stand right now? I believe that case was the right vehicle at that time to resolve this issue. And um, I'm not too sure, I was asked before, why do you think the court just 
you know, ignored it and decided like this is not the appropriate time to resolve it. Um, I don't know if it was an ideological view at that time. I don't know if it was just a layout of the court. It can be many factors. I would not, I, I wouldn't, I'm not too sure why at that time it wasn't. You know, th this is a case where there are a lot of indications that Mr. Counterman has mental health issues. And, you know, what, what he, his, he says in his brief is that he had understood uh, that the musical performer he was allegedly stalking was posting secret messages to him. Uh, and that's his explanation for why he, uh, you know, kept posting the, kept sending her direct messages. And I'm just kind of wondering, you know, how that fits into this case. There's, there's such a, seems to be such a delta, such a gap between what he perceived to be happening and what the, she, she perceived to be happening and what maybe an objective observer might have uh, seen what was happening here. And I'm wondering, is this an unusual case in that regard? And how might that, uh, his mental health affect the court's analysis in this case? So I think under a, what Billy Counterman is arguing in this case, so arguing for a subjective standard, then um, that would be considered, and, and um, it's important because the petitioner in this particular case lacked that subjective intent to threaten or intimidate, right? So if there is a clear disconnect be between what he meant to say or do through his speech and what he actually did, then um, clearly the defendant or the petitioner in our case or Billy lacked the spe specific intent to threaten his victim or intimidate her. And, uh, you know, Colorado argues um, that it actually requires courts to consider the context in which a statement was made when determining if something is a true threat and that that test actually includes several factors like the medium or the platform through which the statement was made. Um, they have to consider the relationship between the speaker and the recipient of that message and the statement's role in the broader exchange. And so I'm just curious, why isn't that context-driven objective standard? Why is isn't that enough? Because the context, it's the the context alone would also dis, would disregard. See, so it's it disregards the subjective intent of the speaker. So when someone speaks, um, I feel like it's important to consider what they what kind of intent they put behind their speech, aside from the context itself, because context can take place. Um, you know, speech can take place in various contexts, but without considering the defendant's speech or the the actual intent behind those words. It's just hard to, it, it seems so terribly unfair to punish a person or strip them of their, of their freedom and liberty just because of their words. Okay, thanks so much for chatting. Thank you. So that'll do it for today's podcast. If you want to know more news about what's happening at the Supreme Court, or you just want to see what Greg and I are up to, visit our website, news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government, newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal and government policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's 
a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know. But you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts.